We shall never surrender. Welcome to Guys Open. Today on Guys Open, we're going to be covering a brief clip by Alex Epstein on the Rubin Report, and he's going to be talking about intellectual integrity. He's going to be talking about uh, his experiences in intellectual integrity, growing up with uh, people who hate him, uh, an enemy that's very vicious and very much hates life. And we'll, we'll get some theological takeaways that we can apply to our own spiritual journeys, uh, even though this is not about theology. It's about fossil fuels. This is a really good, really good interview. I suggest everyone listen to it. Nothing like this. So you have to have a very proactive uh, attitude where you want the technologies to be as good as possible. And one conspicuous attribute of the anti-humans is they always want the technologies they're against to be bad. Like that you. So I like how he talks about his critics, they're anti-humans, because in this episode, he talks about what is the ultimate value in uh, in our, our lives, in, in technology, in what we're trying to do. It's it's we're, We don't save the planet for this planet's sake. If we want to save the planet, it's so that human beings could live a better life. And so that should be our ultimate value. Our ultimate value should be giving the most and best comfortable life to the most human beings that we possibly can. We should be human-centric, human-focused. But a lot of his critics, these people who are save the earth, want to save the earth for the earth's sake, as if the earth is good without humans and anything that advances human comfort, well-being, uh, longevity, living longer, anything like that is bad. And so they're anti-humans. Their goal is not to help humans uh, live, live comfortable lives, but to destroy anything that could give comfort to humans. You really feel viscerally that they want uh, catastrophic climate change to be true. And, and I ask this question on Twitter. Nobody has ever contradicted me. How many catastrophists do you know who would be happy if they found out they were wrong? Because they're gleeful every storm and every, every bad mm. weather event that they attribute to... Right. So a lot of times people, they, they really truly care about their beliefs so much so that it, to find out or to even the thought that they might be wrong in their belief, uh, that they, they will put them into some sort of emotional rage, some, some sort of Calvinist, uh, you're talking about who God is, even, even the possibility that the God of the old Testament is one who interacts with people and, uh, has, is, is involved in give and take relationships. They have this very uh, vitriol, guttural reaction to it. Oh, I can never worship a god like that. They're very much emotionally invested in their own beliefs. They want their beliefs to be true. It's like, uh, to be more objective, you need to step back. You need to pull your emotions out of out of uh, what's at play here. And you need to be willing to be wrong. CO2 and, you know, SUVs and that kind of thing. There's a real glee. Yeah. Whereas I would, and sometimes I'll tell them like a counterfact, like, hey, you know that actually the rate of people dying from climate is going way down. We're actually way safer. And, and they immediately like, scream at me. And I say, wait a second, shouldn't you be happy at least that there's a possibility? But they're, they're not happy people in general, but they're not, they're not happy about the potential of progress. All right. So the, the, there's a lot there. So let's, uh, let's pause with that. So how did you get involved in this? Because I can see how... So yeah, he deals with a lot of uh, very bitter and angry people. And it's like they talk in this episode about uh, places where the left controls every. That might have been a different episode. It might have been uh, Ruben talking to someone else. But like places where the left controls every. Oh, it's his Sargon interview, where they take control of these campuses, and you would think, oh, that all the leftist values of peace and tolerance should make this a very harmonious place. But those are the most 
most uh, damaging, critical, uh, hateful, spiteful, uh, least ruly places to go. And no one wants to go there because every place they take over turns into a hellhole. Passionate it is for you. And obviously <laughs> you've staked out a position that is not politically popular. So like when you go to this rally in New York City, it's, it's not fun being yelled at people and told you're evil and you're... Yeah, that's the thing. So if you're growing up open theist, uh, no one likes you. No one likes you. you. You've got enemies on all sides of you. And they're always screaming at you. I've, uh, in some ministries, I was surrounded by a bus of people just all screaming all their points. At one. I can't even respond. I can't respond. I, I, one at a time, please. One at a time. One person, please, at a time. And then we'll talk about the issues at stake. But uh, they're, they're not very happy when they find out what you believe about God. You're always on the defensive. You're always fighting everyone. And uh, it's not fun. It's not fun to be the not liked person. People were saying, he's a sellout. They don't know anything about you. You know what I mean? So how did you even get involved and interested in this in the first place? Well, I mean, being politically popular, I think, is a pretty poor goal to, to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm really, so my, my background was I was like a total math science kid until I was 14 or 15 years old, like no interest in politics, no interest in writing. I thought those people were the biggest losers. Like what I do in terms of primarily being a philosopher and talking about things, like as a kid, I thought there was no worse thing that you could do with your life. If you were to be good, what you had to do is you had to be an athlete, a businessman, or like a scientist uh, slash engineer. When I was 14 years old, like kind of the peak of my scientific career, I won the national Mars rover design contest. Mm -hmm. And so that was totally my direction. I remember having a I like this guy. I like this guy. Conversation He's my guy. with some friends and they were arguing liberal and conservative. They said, what are you? And I said, what's a liberal? What's a conservative? You know, which most people at 14 know that. Right. And they started making fun of me. And I said, you know what? I'm tired of all you idiots like yelling at each other and nothing. I hated it because it was so illogical and people were just yelling. There was no common ground. I said, you know what? I'm going to think logically about this just like I do about engineering. And sort of since then, I've just been fascinated with the question of what are the fundamental things that actually lead human beings to success? What are what I call now the fundamental principles of human progress? And I yeah, so he he, he sets out the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal in his his uh, philosophy, his uh, his ideas of politics, is what gives human beings ultimate good. What makes human life the ultimate best that it can be? Whereas in the Bible, our ultimate goal, it should be a mathematical calculation. What did the ancient authors believe about Yahweh? You know, you could have a different goal for your own personal religion, but when reading the Bible, that really should be our goal is a historical evaluation of the text to come to a conclusion about what each individual author believed about God. And that, that should be override everything else. It should override our emotions. We shouldn't have these emotional investments one way or the other. Whatever the data leads us to should be acceptable without some sort of guttural reaction that makes us really mad. I know a lot of people do that. They're like, oh, if God was like this, then this and this and oh, oh, they argue by, by adverse consequences that the fallacy of adverse consequences. That's not a that's not a real argument, not a real argument. But I like this guy. Let's listen to him. I went through being a liberal, a conservative, a libertarian. And as you mentioned, discovering Ayn Rand when I was 18 had a really big impact on me. But I really cared about that issue and it really bothered me 
that people couldn't have intelligent discussions and that there was no common uh, frame of reference. So a lot of my career, really all my career has been A, trying to figure out what leads to progress mm -hmm. and B, how to persuade other people. So when I see the anti-human movement, as I call it, I think that movement contradicts every fundamental principle of progress. I think it contradicts human flourishing. I think it contradicts individual freedom. I think it contradicts critical thinking. I think it contradicts our nature as transformers of nature. So I really hate it and I hated it since I was 18, and I've loved ability, and, and I only got into energy like nine years later, but I, I really oppose the anti-human movement. So it's, it's, it's about fossil fuels, but it's about every form of making life better, and I think fossil fuels is one of many things that's really good that the Greens have misrepresented as poisonous. Right, so we'll get to the Greens in a second, but so I, I'd imagine that a certain amount of people watching this are gonna say, all right, so he's into fossil fuels and he's into Ayn Rand, and they're gonna say, well, Ayn Rand, it was somehow selfish. I mean, that's when I've, when I've talked to your own book, uh -huh. when I talked to Mark Pellegrino and a few other people, that that seems to be the main critique, that it, 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 there's a selfishness to this. And when I had John... <laughs> I'd read... Uh, uh... Ayn Rand has a lot of uh, good texts and uh, some good fiction, some awful fiction too, like uh, her book Atlas Shrugged. It's like all all monologue. It's like oh, what? It's like seventeen pages of a monologue. It's like oh, and herself, she was kind of a, like a crummy person. Rothbard wrote a play about her about how uh, it's like the power corrupts thing, where she became so full of herself that. Um, she, she didn't allow any dissent. She, she created this uh, aura, this bubble, a personality bubble around her. And she got really mad at Rothbard for liking a different character in one of her books than her. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's craziness. It's craziness. Whenever we look at any issue in life, we're, we're implicitly or explicitly saying this is good because I define good this way. We always have an implicit definition of good, whether we're talking about climate or fossil fuels or free speech or whatever. And so my, what I call my standard of value is always I wanna maximize human flourishing. And I think in our culture today, the standard of value we're taught, particularly with environmental issues, is we wanna minimize human impact on the planet. So I want people to think whenever they run into these issues, ask, ask themselves, is this thinker on the premise of maximum human flourishing? or are they on the premise of minimum human impact? And I think when you look at things, whether it's organic food or GMO or climate, you'll see a lot of that minimum impact as the ideal. And I think that completely contradicts maximizing human well-being. So if you wanna maximize flourishing, you wanna maximize, you wanna minimize negative impacts, but you wanna maximize positive impacts. Look at his goal, he's, he's very goal-orientated. And again, our goal when reading the Bible should be what did the ancient authors believed when they penned the verses that uh, they're describing. What did they believe about God? What was their theology? And that should be our ultimate goal. And when you see people with their alternative goals is how do you build God into whatever systematic theology they're trying to construct? Um, that's the wrong goal. That's the wrong goal when, when dealing with uh, reading the Bible, reading the Bible. I think that's a great filter to look at life through. Yeah, uh, that's a perfect closing, but I should mention that you said to me right before we started that one of my former guests, Michael Mann, who's a climate scientist, I think at Penn State, Penn State, am I right? Yeah. Uh, that he, uh, he's blocked you on Twitter, which I guess goes to a little bit of just how contentious this whole thing is because- Elon uh, Musk too. Elon Musk has blocked you too? I mean, but yeah, what was interesting about Michael Mann, I'd say when, when watch Michael Mann speak, I encourage anyone to watch any of his his lectures. I haven't seen yeah. your interview, but I've we seen his lectures. Look at the precision or non-precision about the issue of what is demonstrated versus what is speculated. 
yeah, take a look at that. What is uh, advocated, what is uh, claimed versus what is demonstrated? This is about proof texting. He's talking about proof texting. Yeah, people say, oh, God never changes. And then they'll quote Malachi, Malachi 3, a verse, uh, a chapter in which God does repent. And uh, the end of which is where God writes a list of righteous people such that he doesn't accidentally punish the wrong people on the day of judgment. And they'll claim that is their uh, definite proof for God being totally immutable, never changing in any respect. So they make a lot of claims, but they don't demonstrate their claims. And it's uh, just this illusion, this this false proof texting. And uh, the same thing's happening to this guy, this uh, Epstein. Because what they tend to do is they'll say something trivial like CO2 warms, which everyone agrees with, mm-hmm. and then they'll jump into, therefore, it's catastrophic. So it's a Moton Bailey tactic is what he's talking about. So so what they do is they make hyperbolic claims, and then when you press them on those claims, they retreat back to a more defensible claim. Uh, in this case, it's, uh, oh, the entire world's going to warm up, we're going to lose all the polar bears, and all the ice caps are going to melt. And so you, you press them on that, and they come back to say, oh, there's a lot, lot of CO2 that's getting pumped into the atmosphere, which causes some warming. Right. And uh, the Calvinist will do that, too. They'll say, oh, God has this this inherent knowledge that he knew from all eternity that uh, he didn't get from outside himself. And uh, then their proof text for this will be just these general verses about, oh, God knows all things. <laughs> right. Right. And it's, it doesn't demonstrate. So they, they have to retreat back to a more defensible position when they're called on their extremes. Their precision, in Epstein's word, their precision is lacking. They they don't demonstrate what they're claiming. Matt Slick did this throughout the Will Duffy-Matt Slick debate, where he just threw out proof text after proof text, and he didn't demonstrate that any of his proof texts meant what he's claiming. And uh, Will Duffy should have taken him to task, but Will Duffy didn't uh, for Will Duffy's own reasons, maybe to think about it. But... Uh, it's, it's what they do. So just look at, is Michael Mann really respecting your mind? Is he really explaining things with the degree of precision that would be necessary for you to really understand the topic? Asking you to take a position. I'm just saying yeah. people should think about that. And one indication is how they deal with debate. Now, people can, I don't block people, <laughs> other people. That, yeah, how do people deal with debate? Do they pe- people engage in active debate? Uh, do they answer questions? One rule on the God is Open Facebook page, Beautiful rule, great rule. Only only time people get kicked out of the guys open is for not answering questions, because the answering questions that shows you the weakness in your view. It forces you, forces you, to deal with critical points of your opposition. So you must answer questions. If you can't answer questions, or you can't engage in debate, uh, your your position is intellectually dishonest. It's in- intellectually indefensible. They can have their policy, but Michael Mann wrote a post that said. Alex Epstein is the Koch brothers' attack dog, <clears throat> which wouldn't be a negative thing in my view. But <laughs> That's funny. It's like the Calvinists who are always like, oh, you're a heretic. Oh, you're a semi-Pelagian or Pelagian. It's like, I, it, that doesn't sound like a bad thing to me. I don't know. And, uh, you know, it's this name calling in order to be dismissive. And it happens to this guy, too. I, I, I have a lot of things in common with this Epstein. I, I like the guy. But it was bizarre. I mean, it was, it's not true. I mean, nobody's funding me at all. Um, and it, he just made it up. He just completely made it up. The idea was he didn't engage my argument. And then I said something to the effect of, this is a lie. What is your evidence? And then he blocked me. Yeah. So it's it's 
what you see there is that when people, so there are two types of, I think, having the moral high ground. One is when you have a real confidence, and that's when you're willing to explain your views to people. And the other is where you have a certain societal status, where it's not really earned, but it's considered, you, you dominate the politically correct version. Yeah, that's what the Calvinists do. They have their circles, their bubbles, and so what, how they interact with their opponents, so their, their, criti their critics, they just call them names. Oh, that's semi-plagian. Oh, that's a heretical belief. And because it's a, it's about its status, they have their little cult followers who just follow their them their every word. They feed into them. They don't actually have to respond to critical statements against them because they're just virtue signaling to their to their audience. They they have this fake moral high ground in which uh, they don't they all they have to do in their mind to respond and refute something is just to quote it. Doesn't work like that. Doesn't work like that. Uh, uh, you have the political correctness at this point in time in society, and when people have that kind of pseudo moral authority, they do all sorts of irrational things. So when somebody acts like they have pseudo moral authority, uh, that's a that's a good statement. Well, I, I interact with these people all the time. They're just rah, 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 and then they they try to take a moral high ground approach. And you can't let people do that moral high grounding. Uh, Matt Slicks, in all his debates, he's always like, you're not treating me nice. You got to treat me better. And you got to worship at my feet in order to talk to me. It's this, this moral grandstanding. He, Arthur Hagelin treated it very well. He's, he said, uh, no, I'm, not, I'm a frank guy. I'm just telling it to you straight. And uh, I'm not going to treat you like whatever you're trying to force me to treat you like. You can't let them do that. You can't let them moral high ground you, grandstand you, take them to task. This guy on one of my pages says, oh, you're calling brothers fools. And Jesus says, if you're calling your brother a fool, then you're in danger of hellfire. Well, Jesus called a lot of people a lot of names. And so how does that work in your system? And how do you think that maybe, maybe, maybe you think I've never read that verse. I've never considered its meaning. Oh, you got me there. Oh, no. That's like, grow up, dude. Who was he talking to? What was the context? What was his meaning? And how does that square with all the times that Jesus calls people names? Right? Uh, none of this moral grandstanding stuff. Call them to task. They have the moral high ground, I think. Seeing if they're really a debater or whether they just want to dictate to you that's or, or ignore you, that's a really good test. I think it's a good, you know, one of the reasons why people really value this show is, you know, you, you're not an unconfident guy, although, you, you know, you're interviewing people, but it's, you know, there's a certain confidence in being willing to discuss things with anyone. And there's a certain, it's, it's very revelatory when people are not willing to yeah. discuss things. And their number one talking point is there's nothing to discuss. <laughs> right. Well, I always find it funny. It's that I, I never felt, I've never in my life felt the need to be right all the time. And everyone I feel, that's a really good point. And Ruben, uh, he's he's not, uh, he used to be a, like the Young Turks or whatever. He's like an atheist. He's like a homosexual. But he interacts with all these people like Ben Shapiro because he, he doesn't do this moral grandstanding. He doesn't feel the need to be right. And he's willing to listen to and consider arguments. So that's that's in part why his, his show is so good. He'll have people like uh, Alex Epstein on to talk about the issues instead of uh, just blocking them. Oh, I don't want to associate with you because you're a heretic. And, you know, the, the, the social justice warriors, it, it is a religion where you can't associate with the heretics of the social justice world or else uh, they rub off on you. Oh, you got to blacklist and never talk to these people and never debate with them, never interact with them. This moral grandstanding type of stuff. 
But Ruben doesn't do that. It makes it a good show. And we shouldn't do that either. We should be able to engage with and deal with people who want to come to the table and talk through the issues. It doesn't mean you have to, if someone comes and you like all these Facebook pages, all these Calvinists just want to dump a meme and just make absurd statements and then not interact and defend their positions. They, they just want to do this domineering thing and, and not interact. You don't have to deal with those people, but have honest conversations with honest people. That's that's the best strategy. Feel in, in the public space always wants to prove how right they are. I'm completely fine having this conversation, and maybe I would look back now on my interview with Michael Mann and sort of look at through through a bit of a lens of what you've just said there. And maybe I, if I have him on again, I would push him on some of those things. All right, well, that's the conversation I want to have, and that's why we did it. So you guys can. Anyway, so our takeaways are don't have such a moral stock in uh, what we want to believe that we are uh, throwing out all the evidence that we have this emotional guttural reaction to being told we're wrong. Oh, no, I can't be wrong because of my emotion you know, like the Calvinists. They're like, if that was true, then we no one could be assured of their salvation. Well, your view people God damns people to hell after tricking them that they are true believing Christians. So that doesn't give me any uh, reassurance. But anyways, besides all that, that's an emotional argument. You're just so emotionally invested in your 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 truth being right that uh, that's not an argument. That's, that's uh, the fallacy from adverse consequences, the argument from adverse consequences. Logical fallacy. We need to step back and look at the evidence objectively and not put so much personal investments in our views. We don't have to be so personally invested to be in utter shock and disbelief when someone comes to the table with a view different than yours. Consider their views. Uh, consider their beliefs. Don't care about your beliefs that much that uh, you, you're you unwilling to consider other other sides and other evidences. So I like this interview. I like uh, Ruben Report, and I like uh, this Alex Epstein guy. He's my guy. But uh, thanks for listening.